Smartcast. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What up, and welcome to Or Whatever Movies. I'm your co-host, Iris, and I'm here with my older bro. Wesley, hey. And today, we are here to talk about Golden Globe Best Picture, musical or comedy winner, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Wes? Musical or comedy, all right. It was funny. It was funny? Like, far, is Fargo a comedy? Mmm, good question. I Probably. So, it depends on who you ask. If you ask Kelly, she'd say absolutely not, but... I've always had a problem with the Golden Globes. Where they put certain movies to position them to give them the best chance to win, the Hollywood Foreign Press is notorious for being bought. You can wine and dine and schmooze the Hollywood Foreign Press. Uh, that's part of your budget for your, uh, for your movie, for your awards campaign, for the Hollywood Foreign Press at least. It's whining and dining the voters, and it's been no secret in Hollywood for a long time that they're very susceptible to suggestion. So I actually want to talk about Quentin Tarantino's ninth film, but I just have to ask, who is the Hollywood Foreign Press? I don't know. I have no idea. We don't know who they are, and we're movie fans. Dude, we should become a part of the Hollywood Foreign Press. Can. I mean, just on, on what? Our last name credibility alone? Yeah, we're foreigners. Sure. All right. So Once Upon a Time in Hollywood yep. came out when? 2019. What month? Is this like a quiz? I mean, I rely on you on fa for facts. July? Yes, August? as a matter of fact. Yes, it was July. Thanks for remembering. It just birthday. happened to be my birthday movie. You got it. Yeah, all right. So Once Upon a Time came out in July 2019, which feels like a million years ago, which is why I rewatched the film on the plane while I was traveling this holiday. By the way, I'm honked up from holiday travel and totally sick. Yeah, man, you're still in the throes. Yeah. Whereas I got sick a few weeks ago, and the only lingering thing is my sexy voice. Whatever. That's disgusting. You watched Once Upon a Time in Hollywood on the plane? Yep. I don't know if that viewing counts. Especially when I'm juggling an eight-month-old. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't really. But it, it did help me refresh a little bit because it's been some time, almost half a year, and um, I liked it less. Liked it less. That's because, I think, that's because the movie relies a little bit on your knowledge of what comes is, is coming the inevitable conclusion that we all know happened historically and the suspense of figuring out how Tarantino is going to tie that into this narrative with characters that we are positioned to really like mm -hmm. and to admire and we know how it goes down and how is he going to handle that I think a lot of it is diffused. I remember coming out of the first screening wondering how would that be upon second viewing? Mm -hmm. I mean how many times have you seen it? Four times. 
give or take. So uh, th it's been like I'd, I'd pick it up from where I left off. I would have to imagine that seeing it for the second time and basing it and analyzing it on those merits is something akin to walking into the movie with no historical context. We've talked about this before with The Irishman and even compared it in some small way to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and what it must be to not have any concept of the history that is so firmly rooted in so much a part of this movie, to not know and to not feel that dread and anticipation of moving toward uh, a conclusion that's inevitable um, has to defuse the movie a little bit. Right, yeah. So I, I went into the original viewing back in July of 2019 knowing at the very least that Sharon Tate's murdered, right? And that, that, that much context I had. But Brian, I think I had mentioned, did not have that context and full-on thought that Margot Robbie was in the theater, delusional, thinking that she was watching someone who wasn't herself on the screen and getting all giddy about it. I, do, I wasn't going to name drop people, but I do know people who went into this movie cold, who are not Brian, who had no clue. It was just a movie about 60s Hollywood, and we'll see what's happening. I can't imagine going through that experience. Because, as you stated, having watched it a second time, moving toward a conclusion where you know how things ultimately play out on on screen, right? Different experience. Yeah, totally different experience. And I think I liked it less this time because I really had a hard time with Margot Robbie's performance. Really? Yeah, and I and I and I have to say, I think it was. A, I think it came down to the directing, to who you know, Quentin Tarantino directing her to be this really like dancey flighty, smiley, happy-go-lucky character. Like all she does is like and like smile and like look all googly-eyed when she sees herself on posters and she sits and like this, the scene where she's watching herself in the theater and like people are laughing around her and enjoying performances is like interminable. You yeah. didn't see, you didn't get this at all when you saw it in repeat viewing? Um. I don't know a lot. I know what happened to her. I don't know about a lot about Sharon Tate's personal life. Yeah. Um, I didn't have a lot to base on her personality on. I, maybe she was that flighty or that inconsequential in the things she says or does. I don't know. Uh, she wasn't a very big star by the time she was gone. Obviously, as he noted, when uh, as Tarantino noted, when she went to the Bruin in Westwood yeah. to get into the movie, she had to convince the people that she was in the movie, which must have been especially weird for Brian like why they fell for it if she wasn't in that movie. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I don't know. Um, it was obviously set up so that we were, she was meant to be endearing and we were right. supposed to love her for her innocence and sweetness and this Hollywood machine is churning around her where uh, Steve McQueen is lurking in the background wishing he had a chance, you know? And her, her goals and her desires are just so simplified and transparent that she is just a lovable thing that not really consequential so I don't know I gave her kind of a pass because ultimately she doesn't figure really heavily into the movie plot wise she's kind of a MacGuffin yeah and and therefore I couldn't judge her too harshly on well she was a major figure and didn't really impart much from Smiley Dancy I mean, I guess maybe in that sense that the performance was effective. It kind of diminished her a little bit. And I know people were also complaining about her, num the number of lines or words that she spoke. Yes, and I, I do remember that. And I think the performance didn't help. Yeah, so I didn't grasp that, criti I didn't have that criticism when I first saw the movie, but it's probably because I was focusing my ire elsewhere. Where? Um, 
Leonardo DiCaprio. <gasps> yep, Don't I said it. even. I said it. He got his Oscar. Good for him. Now comes a true test. I'm glad he won his little Oscar. Now everyone can stop bitching about it. And if he's going to get another one, he would have to do it on his own merits, not because the populace demands it. Okay. Well, he was nominated for a performance for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah, but for the Golden Globes, that doesn't mean anything. Okay. So why do you, what's, what, what is stoking your ire? I just, I don't think Leonardo DiCaprio is a great actor. I think he's a capable actor. I think he is a, I think he's a hard-working actor. Very much so. I don't know that Tom Cruise is a great actor, but Tom Cruise is also a hard-working actor. However, he comes, this may be strange to say, but Tom Cruise comes across much more likable on screen than Leonardo DiCaprio does to me. Most of the notes he hits are false. And that's strange considering a lot of great movies. He's been in a lot of some of my favorite movies. Unfortunately, the best movies that he's in happen around him and sort of in spite of him. This, he just may not be my taste. Some people geek me out. I wouldn't say he geeks me out because I think there's definitely something there. Uh, What's Eating Gilbert Grape is a testament to his ability to act, especially at a young age. It just seems like he's not exactly one note. I just find him a little bit grating. Mm -hmm. And as a full-grown adult man in adult situations, he doesn't seem believable to me. I've grown up with him and I know what he's like in the younger roles like Titanic and I know that he got all buff and got all serious and got lines on his forehead and that little brow crease that he does that makes him a serious actor. He just never grew up to me. He never fills the shoes of a man's role. Yeah. It's, it's strange and he's older than I am and it's difficult to say I'm just not his biggest fan. I think he's fine but he's not the focus. He was not the focus of this movie for me. Well, remember how you were saying that Colin Firth, Darcy, could like never be replaced in the minds and the hearts of the British ladies? This is speculation on my part about the British ladies, yes. Yes, well, it's not speculation on my part that Leonardo DiCaprio had captured every heart, including mine, in 1997. Um, And I think for that, he's kind of got an eternal pass for me. It's not like I'll skip movies because Leonardo DiCaprio is in them. I just really hope that in spite of him doing the same thing over and over again, I'll still enjoy the movie. And most of the time, I really do. Do you think that part of this, part of your issue is that he doesn't, he's not transformative um, appearance-wise? Um, I don't know that that's the problem. I, I think his voice is a little bit too high-pitched. He's a little bit too uh, high-strung to be genuine to me. I think his anger, or I think his, I think his emotional range is cute, angry. Cute, angry, yelly, with that little pointy thing he does. Right. The really close to his body, intense pointing thing right. that he does. Which he but, does admirably when he's trying to tell the hippies to get lost. Yeah, and, and were you what, waiting for it too? Because I brought this up before. When Definitely. is he going to do the finger pointy thing and he did it? Well, yeah, you were like, he does it every movie. And right. I was like, not once upon a time in Hollywood. And then I was like, oh my gosh, there it is. Did it. Uh, Tarantino feet, DiCaprio funny pointy thing. Feet. Tarantino in the foot fetish thing. Quentin Tarantino has a foot fetish? Roll the clip. <laughs> yeah, you wish. All right. We have, yes. Maybe after we get maybe like a thousand more Patreon subscribe, um, patrons. One of the stories was um, someone was in a high, high profile screening, like the premiere, something like that. 
And then the feet showed up when uh, Brad Pitt's character picks up Margaret Qualley on the way to the spawn ranch. And someone in the crowd, a lady, yelled out, there's the feet, and everybody cracked up. <laughs> if you haven't seen it by now, it's not going to get any more obvious. But yes, Tarantino has a foot thing. Whoa. No judgment. It's just a lot of feet. This is a this is a do, like a publicly known documented oh, yeah. thing. Okay. All well, right. no, I don't know that he's clinically diagnosed with foot fetishism, but it it's pretty apparent. Okay. Well, well, see, like the finger thing, if you go back and watch any of his movies, it's un, you'll never be able to unsee it now. I'm sure there'll be some night where I just pop on Inglorious Bastards and see it all over the place. Or oh, you, wait, the foot. There's totally a foot in Inglorious Bastards. Or YouTube Quentin Tarantino feet. And you'll get the montage in one fell swoop. <laughs> All right, so we talked about Leonardo DiCaprio, but we haven't talked about Brad Pitt, who won an award, a Golden Globe, for his performance in Once Upon a Time, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yes, and even when it wasn't in vogue, I really liked Brad Pitt. I liked him in this performance immediately, and that was sustained throughout. I thought he did a great job. I thought he deserved this bullshit nonsense award uh, because I think he's really good. He also isn't extremely diverse, or his range isn't profound, but he is likable all the time. In a weird way that, that Tom Cruise is for me, um, he's, he's very good at what he does, and I think he was kind of playing Brad Pitt in this movie. If Brad Pitt were around in 69, an adult in 1969 era Hollywood, I'm pretty sure this is who he would be. Well, I have to agree that Brad Pitt was playing Brad Pitt on acid. Because if Brad Pitt took acid, he would be exactly like he was in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah, one of his, his breakthrough role, I guess, True Romance has him on drugs, too. And it's pretty spot on. Wait, True Romance? Yeah, he made the best stoner ever. Cool. That's Quentin Tarantino. Uh, written by, yeah. Tony Scott directed. Is that the one where he's, like, on the couch? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that Come was his... sending me, man. Fucking Wh kill you, man. That guy. Was True Romance before or after Thelma and Louise? After. After, because mm -hmm. he kind of played a drunky stoner dude in Thelma and Louise too. Mm, he was just kind of cute and maybe aloof, like kids are, probably on drugs. Okay. In real life and in the role. All right. So you think he deserved the award? Yes, I do. That was pretty good. Pretty good, right? Yeah. It comes with a sexy voice from being sick. I mean, I, I thought he was good. I thought that he brought his Brad Pittness to, to it. I thought that the and so so Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is one of those movies that it's kind of a slog. And even though there are fun moments in these little scenes that seem inconsequential and meaningless, it all, they all pay off at the end. Yes. And they pay off largely because of Brad Pitt and his dog, Brandy, yes. when the hippies descend on Rick Dalton's house. So really, the movie couldn't ha could not have come together the way it did without Brad Pitt and his performance, I think. Essential, satisfying. Right. My, the joy I got in the second viewing was wondering how those long, really long setup scenes would pay off, where we can see his agility when he hops onto the roof. Right. Where we understand now why we sat through the scene in his trailer where he's feeding Brandy and telling her not to move. And if he moves, she moves, we're going to, how well trained she was. Right. Right. All that stuff served to set up very important stuff later, but at the time, it felt maybe a little sloggy, a little drawn out. Uh, I could not say the same for Leonardo DiCaprio's character. We oh. can get into that if you want. What? Everything Everything is set up. Oh, everything is set up. Okay, I would argue that his meeting at Musso and Frank with uh, Mr. Schwarz was uh, enough, where he, especially the, the great scene in the parking lot afterwards, um, where he was convincing enough and angry about 
his career being washed up and being asked to star in spaghetti westerns of all things, right? Enough to set up his insecurities and his fears about his future so that if he just showed up again at the end uh, and was led through the gates of the Polanski estate, that the payoff would have been the same. He has a chance here. If he'd gone to Italy and then shown up at the Polanskis right after he came home without the laborious, really long day on the set. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Playing the heavy in, in so-and-so's show. Even the second time I watched it, I went in saying... This is a really long movie. I'm, I've already seen it, so I'm not going to shy away from drinking a soda, and I know exactly when I'm going to the bathroom. That's when that stupid kid starts talking with her book. Oh, yeah. I was like, I'm not watching the book scene again. I think, in retrospect, the only reason we had to suffer through that day is because Cliff needed an excuse for a whole day with the Cadillac on his own to take the girl back to the Spawn Ranch uh, to get in touch with and be associated with the Manson family so that that would all pay off later. I remember you and your white face and your your hair, you know, right. um, just to get That's interesting. out of the way. That's interesting. There were some plot acrobatics maybe that were happening at script level so that um, Brad Pitt's character could get away because on the set there are a lot of repeat beats. So, so you think that his ultimate redemption was getting invited to the Polanski's estate or for torching the hippie in the pool? No, his redemption was being in a situation where he just happened to, unbeknownst to Sharon Tate and her friends, save them from the fate that they were destined to, to, to undergo. Yep. And as a result, was invited into the state. The, the gates opened, the doors of opportunity opened for him. I mean, I think either way, they're both pretty redeeming moments for him and he didn't necessarily need to be redeemed on the set for having had that you know performance where he's holding the girl hostage and all that kind of stuff I think that's a good point that we basically Brad Pitt needed to get away for a day yeah and maybe they could have find it, found another way to do that maybe they found themselves in a corner after the fact when it came to the cutting room my understanding is that Tarantino spends a lot of time uh, over the editor's shoulder and being really involved in post um, he had the miraculous Sally Menke for years and years and years. Unfortunately, she passed away. Uh, starting with Django, he started with a new editor, and he seems to have a regular in the way that Scorsese uh, has a regular. Um, and maybe he was a little bit more insistent this time around, or they found themselves in a conundrum where they couldn't chop out. But like The Irishman, I don't think it's hard to argue that Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was very long certainly too long and I'm guessing that if you trimmed a solid half an hour of it mostly Leonardo DiCaprio content it would have been a better movie for it how they could have done that and uh, and if that were possible I don't know but it's what I would have preferred he definitely takes his time and goes through great pains to set up very little things. Tarantino's really, really good at what he does. I'm a Quentin Tarantino fan. Maybe he needs to be reined in a little bit, and maybe he knows it. He's a little bit verbose, and I'm sure that there are a lot of things that he wishes could have made it to the screen, even Hateful Eight. He released a four-part extended cut. It was like four hours long. Granted, there were credits on the end of each episode of four episodes. Very, very long. And you maybe need a, an editor to rein you in. There was a moment where Cliff was on the roof, 
relatively inconsequential scene where we flashed back to why he wasn't working that day because right. he had a problem with Randy and Randy's wife on the set. In the middle of that fight, which I love with Bruce Lee, he flashback. they did it a flashback within the flashback of him possibly murdering his wife. Oh, that's right. And, and so when we came back through two levels of inception, back to him being on the roof to have him go, <laughs> All right, fair enough. It's a lot, right? <laughs> a and little indulgent. I'm willing to let Quentin Tarantino be indulgent, but at some point you got to rein it in and maybe keep it around the two-hour mark. Yeah. I mean, when you get to be a director of his his status, it's really hard for a producer. I, I really think that this is a producer's job. I think this is what happened when P.T. Anderson went off the rails, that he didn't, maybe didn't have the strongest producers to kind of rein him in and to tell him no. I mean, I think it's important. It's an important part of the creative process to have collaborators who can tell you it's a little bit too much. I went to a screening of The Master where the producers, you were there for that Q&A, they literally said, we let P.T. Anderson do whatever he wants to do. Right, which our is job, a problem. Our job is to enable him, absolutely a problem. However, um, he had David, uh, Quentin Tarantino had David Heyman in his corner this time around. Didn't have Reginald Hudlin, didn't have Stacey Scher, who were the ones, the producers of a few of his other movies. Uh, Heyman and some other people, uh, which was interesting. So I don't know if Heyman's a Tarantino fan and let him run amok or whatever the case may be. But I did, you know, I watched it several times for its qualities and also to be able to point out the things that I had frustrations with, uh, pit him down because it is kind of a dense and windy movie. Right. Yeah, David Heyman, um, I think, said in the Q&A that he, this was one of the best scripts that he had ever read and that it was one of the best sets to be, to be on, that Quentin Tarantino really cre creates and fosters a, a good vibe on the set where people are there because they love to make movies. Sure, but he hadn't made a movie with Tarantino at that time, so he chose the project based on the merits of the script, and I guess maybe Tarantino's reputation, and I'm glad that it came together like that. It's the best part of movie making, I think, when you aren't you know slogging every day to make something that you're not sure if you can believe in. If you're having a good time, I think it does show up on screen if, you have all, if you're surrounded by capable people who encourage and support and, and uh, nourish each other, you know? Yeah, totally. Wow, that's so like touchy-feely of you. Yeah. What? I feel like movies are miracles. I think that if they are done correctly, it's a miracle. There are thousands of people literally involved in a major production. The idea that all of those things can come together and dovetail in a way that makes me feel emotional is miraculous. And I think that when it falls short, I can point to the things that's wrong with that movie. It wasn't well written, it wasn't well acted, etc. But when I find a movie that I truly love, it's impossible for me to imagine being any other way. It's still an assembly of the work and the commitment of thousands of people uh, all of whom make this magical thing. It blows my mind. Well, Wes, I'm really touched. Yeah. On that note, are you going to give a rating to Once Upon a Time? Once Upon a Time was all right. Now, it was on the high end of all right. It was really all right. But it was too long. There are many, many good things to like about this movie. Many, many scenes that I was excited to see again, happy to see again. Didn't labor so much with the Sharon Tate stuff, but also wasn't thrilled with those scenes watching them again. But it has what the Irishman didn't. It has scenes that I would love to watch again. We're in Tarantino's world, and it's fun to be there. 
uh, in the way that I hoped that Scorsese, it would be fun to be back in Scorsese's world, which he's so good at doing, and it just wasn't. All the Tarantino hallmarks are there. He maybe even reigned in his crazier side. Someone said that he matured as a filmmaker, and I agree with that, but he's also pretty indulgent nine films in. He's got one more to go. We'll see what he does. But someone also said, or maybe I said, I don't remember, that this might have been a fitting final film for him. He's committed only to directing 10. Whether he holds to that, I don't know. But can you imagine if Once Upon a Time in Hollywood were his swan song? That might have been pretty fitting. What's he going to do thematically to top this movie And if he were going to go out on a with a bang? I don't know. It certainly, hopefully, wouldn't be the Star Trek movie he's been talking about mm. or the horror movie he would like to direct. I don't know. But I'm there for it. I'm willing to get, not a pass, but I'm certainly willing to give him the benefit of doubt. Well, I'm, what, what I find hard to fathom is a world, a Hollywood, without Quentin Tarantino. It's tough, and I don't want to be in that Hollywood just yet. But he says he'll stay involved. He may write. He may do other things. Who knows? Sure. Right. Well, not uh, necessarily my favorite Quentin Tarantino movie. I think Inglori it, the, it, Hollywood failed to dethrone Inglorious Bastards, but I still think it's good. And with that, this is the end of our episode. If you want to get in touch with us about whatever, you can email us at overwhatevermovies at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail at 818-835-0473. Thanks for listening. I'm Iris, and this is my bro. It's Wesley. See ya. See you next time. Welcome to Transforming 45, the podcast that celebrates the incredible power of passionate voices. I'm your host, Lisa Boat. Join me in conversation with heart-led humans who share their deeply personal stories of transformation. Transforming 45 is here to uplift, connect, and remind you that it's never too late to write your next chapter. So get ready to be inspired, empowered, and transformed. Join me in this community where through powerful storytelling, we heal and reclaim our inherent magic. Electric Acid. Introducing the Deep Leadership Podcast. Leadership is a people business. That's the philosophy of your podcast host, John Rennie. As a former submarine officer who spent 22 years leading businesses in corporate America before starting his own manufacturing business, he knows that leadership matters. Leadership matters. Deep leadership is real-world, actionable leadership advice from John and his expert guests. Become a leader worth following. Subscribe today. Electric Acid. Electric Acid. Electric acid.